Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Keith Willemo is the Chief of the Department of Surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and the Editor-in-Chief of Annals of Surgery. We spoke with him about equity in surgery, bile duct injuries, and the challenges of being in charge of the Annals of Surgery, as well as leadership in general. Check out the show notes below uh, for links to all the papers that we discuss, including the Consensus Conference Guidelines on Bile Duct Injuries. I think we all probably in North America and the world know exactly who you are, of course, but I was wondering for any listeners who may not know you um, uh, closely, if you could sort of give us a sense of, of your training and career path and, and tell us how you ended up where you are now. Okay. Um, well, first of all, thanks for the uh, opportunity to be part of this. Uh, I'm, I'm excited and, and look forward to uh, you having some challenging questions and some good discussion. So uh, I guess I'll start with the very beginning. I'm a farm kid from South Dakota. Uh, I actually went to college at the University of South Dakota and, and did my first two years of medical school there. I then uh, transferred to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, which obviously was quite a culture shock uh, for my last two years of medical school, but we seemed to like it. And so uh, I stayed there for the next 29 years. I, I did my uh, uh, general surgery training at Hopkins. I joined the faculty there and uh, uh, stayed there until uh, uh, 2003. I uh, uh, finished my training in the days before there weren't a lot of fellowships, uh, so I, I consider myself a general surgeon. But over the course of time, my practices uh, sort of migrated to uh, mainly pancreas and biliary, not not much hepatic surgery. I don't do uh, uh, any colorectal anymore, and, and other than bread and butter, general surgery, hernias and lap coles, uh, I guess pancreas has become my niche just because of uh, uh, just the way referral patterns develop both at Hopkins and then later at Indiana and, and now here in Boston. I left Hopkins in 2003. I was at the uh, Indiana University uh uh, from 2003 till uh, 2011. That's where I obviously had the pleasure of uh, uh, working with you, Chad, as, as our fellow um, a few years before I left. And then in, in 2011, um, moved here to Boston and to the Mass General Hospital. And um, everything was going great until about two and a half, three months ago. And uh, now we're facing what for most of us is the biggest challenge of any kind we've ever seen medical society uh, uh economic uh, it's it's a it's an interesting time it's scary but um you know i'm i'm confident uh, our technologies will catch up with this disease and and uh it, the, the day will come soon where uh, you know we'll be back to some normalcy but it may be a new normal you're you're such an international uh, leader and i would even say icon for sure you know, like you said, uh, with regard to pancreas surgery, with regard to bile duct injuries, and probably now COVID as well. But um, maybe avoiding those those topics, at least for the for the start here. Um, you, you know, you've also clearly achieved the the pinnacle of surgical leadership, whether that's you know um, at Indiana and then subsequently the Harvard system as the chairman of surgery, or of course the president of the American Surgical. Just so many examples. When did you know you wanted to pursue that aspect of of, of your profession? So, um, my first role model in surgery was a private practice, solo practice, general surgeon in this little town in South Dakota. And, uh, you know, I came to Johns Hopkins, uh, have, having never, uh, been around surgical residents or been in an academic medical center. And so it was a, uh, you know, it was what I grew up with uh, was at Hopkins, and and I have to say, you 
you emulate those who are your role models. And, and I was very fortunate at Hopkins to have lots of great role models, but probably the number one person that was uh, John Cameron. And, uh, you know, John instilled a lot of things in us, uh, uh, a lot of tough love, but, uh, you know, one thing he instilled upon us is that we should be leaders and leaders, not just national leaders or department chairs or anything like that, but no matter where you are, you should be a leader, whether you're the leader in your um, community uh, surgical group, whether you're um, a leader uh, in your local or state chapter of the American College of Surgeons, or, or whether it be a leader of national organizations or major academic departments, uh, you should strive to be leaders. And, uh, you know, the track record at Hopkins of leadership going back to the products of Halstead and then Blaylock and then more recently the products of the Cameron residency has shown that something about the institution instills the the desire and, and maybe even the expectation that, that you will become a leader of a department of surgery and and so uh, when the opportunity came to go to Indiana and and to be a leader um I uh certainly took it and and uh, uh very much enjoyed the opportunity and and uh certainly there was a way I would say that the job was done but uh um uh, you know the move to uh Boston the MJH added another layer of complexity to uh to the leadership and and another set of challenges and so uh that's sort of the pathway of leadership that I've had. The national leadership opportunities, um, a lot of these come again from, from people helping mentor you and direct you and, and opening doors, a crack for you here or there, getting you on a committee or getting you a entry level, uh, uh, appointment, uh, as a, uh, as a, one of the worker bees in the organization. Uh, you know, I was, Secretary of the SSAT, I was Secretary of the uh, Society of University Surgeons, both which ultimately culminated with with uh, being a president. And same with the American, I was the recorder, which gave me the opportunity to, you know, uh, get to know the organization, serve the organization, and and to develop the connections in the organization that that led to, um, uh, you know, the opportunity to be president. I've said this many times, uh, and it's, and it's not original. But when you you see a turtle on top of a flagpole, you know the turtle had a lot of help getting up there. And uh, I I'm the turtle, and uh, I uh, uh, have had a lot of help along my uh, career in, in every facet. And uh, uh, you know, just consider myself very fortunate. It's it's interesting that you 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 um, you highlight and you bring up you know essentially. A mentor pedigree because I, you know, I was sort of thinking of, of, of exactly that earlier today, as you know, um, you know, being a football fan like you are, Don Shula died and I was looking at his, his coaching tree and then thinking in the context of Belichick and Andy Reid and, and these guys and, and then uh, of Dr. Cameron and you. And it's amazing, um, where quote unquote Dr. Cameron's offspring, including you have ended up and then, and so on. Those, those generations of leaders are, and around for a long time, and the impact's going to be felt for probably forever. Um, wh- one of the really interesting things that I that I always thought uh, about you in particular was the groups of people that you've had ar- around you. And sure enough, it, I mean, it sounds like you you walked into some of it at Hopkins, and were certainly a participate participant in developing it. But how how did you develop such an amazing group in Indiana and then at MGH? Um, you know, these are some of the absolute best of the best folks, and they're amazing clinicians and also amazing humans. Well, at Indiana, um, <clears throat> I, I followed a real giant in in American surgery, uh, uh, in Jay Grossfeld, and and he had set the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he had set the bar of quality very high at at Indiana University, and and. Uh, um, it was a small department, and, and we took the opportunity to grow it. And, and with the opportunity to grow, uh, I was able to recruit some good people, again, many with Hopkins pedigrees that uh, uh, made it uh, like bringing family and friends in uh, to uh, to help me grow it. And, and so that was, uh, that was key there. And then uh, I think coming to the MGH, again, the, the, the place was uh, – tremendous um program it was tremendous faculty tremendous residents but uh 
you know, it gave me a chance to institute a, a perhaps more of a cultural change than any major uh, transition in any other aspect. And and uh, <clears throat> it was it was good timing because you know if you look at the culture of where everything was in America and in surgery and things like the Me Too movement and things like that that have come along in the last five years. Um, and I think your traditional surgical departments would be really struggling now if they hadn't made cultural changes. And I, I think that um, changing the culture has allowed us to recruit uh, you know, great residents. <clears throat> Many uh, have gone on to become great faculty members uh, with us or elsewhere. And it's also allowed us to recruit people from outside the MGH to, to come in and, and uh you know, be uh, exceptional contributors. It's been fun to recruit a couple of division chiefs uh, over the last few years that were from outside of the MGH, and and that was good. A little introducing some new blood is always a good thing. And uh, again, for for junior faculty too, we've got a pipeline of some great junior faculty that have come from other institutions to again help us round out our culture. That's a that's a perfect segue to um, your presidential address. Uh, you know, when you were the the boss of the American Surgical Association, and it, it talked about a number of things, of course, but you know the two dominant issues uh, that you that you uh, demanded attention about and, and really talked eloquently about were equity and equality in surgery. Um, I, I was just curious what what led you down that path, and then um, if you can comment on what was clearly clearly had become a passion for you and some of those improvements moving forward, including the the, the document that you guys published about some of the inequities in in research itself. So, um, I guess I would say uh, being the father of a female surgeon changes your perspective on it a little bit. So, I had that going for me. Um, You've, you've met my daughter, Chad, and, and uh, you know that she's uh, headed the, the lines of surgical oncology. And, and so, uh, uh, again, maybe the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But, uh, um, you know, I, I had grown up in a program where there was very few women uh, uh, residents, uh, even less attendings, uh, and, uh, uh, and had seen as the... Uh, shift in medical students uh, becoming at least 50%, if not greater percentage women, uh, that uh, surgery was going to shoot themselves badly in the foot if we didn't find a way to make our our um, uh, life more attractive to, uh, to uh, people of all uh, genders, all persuasions, all ethnic backgrounds. And, and uh, uh, I, I just thought it was... Uh, time that someone spoke up uh, about some of the things that had been viewed as uh, inequalities, and the American Surgical, as great an organization it was, was was very slow to uh, make the transition. When I gave my presidential address, there'd only been one woman president. The percentage of women in the uh, um, organization was in single digits, uh, and. Um, you know, you could say, well, the pipeline isn't there. You know, people have to progress to get to be members in, of an organization like that. But, you know, uh, we, we had to overcome, you know, those uh, uh, unconscious biases that uh, that do exist. Uh, uh, and unless somebody would bring out the bring these to our attention, uh, whether they be on search committees, whether they be on promotion committees, whether they be on membership committees for prestigious organizations, uh, you know, somebody just had to say, look, at, we, we have to make sure that uh, uh, we have an open and, and level playing field across all uh, factors. And, and uh, uh, I, although I gave my uh, presidential address on, on really gender inequalities, uh, I did open the door for uh, uh, the next year when Ron Mayer was president to uh, extend this beyond just gender into all areas of, of uh, um Mm-hmm. inequalities and, and led to the document that you referred to that I think is a very nice tool for anyone who's looking to establish programs in your in their own uh, uh, department. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that document's going to live on for a long time and it's really changed uh, perception and, and process and structure in, in lots of places. Um, what, you know, one of the things that 
it's clear to everyone in the world is the impact you've had on our field um, through peer-reviewed publication. And, I, you know, again, having spent time with you in Indiana, I was always impressed by um, the productivity of, of that group, in addition to Hopkins and, of course, Harvard. But I, I was curious, how do, you, how do you ensure that productivity? Is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the people you're hiring or is it the structure? I mean, I fondly remember as a fellow getting to sit in on, on the monthly research HPB meetings, which were fantastic. Um, um, but wh which and how, I guess, is, is the question. You know, likes attract, and and uh, you want to go to a place where you have a high level of productivity, and and you know the the driving uh, point behind the good clinical care is is asking uh, you know the questions that need to be asked to make the make the clinical care better, and uh, if you come from an environment where you're stimulated to ask questions and translate the answers of those questions into uh, uh, research and academic productivity, I, I think you. Uh, you can find that that adds another layer of success to, uh, you know, to our careers, and and it it does help in the areas of promotion and recognition, <clears throat> but but um, again, it it really is all about advancing the knowledge that help us take care of patients better, and and um, you know the the I have been very fortunate to be surrounded by people at, at all my all three of my institutions that, that sort of shared that love of uh, academic productivity. And, and uh, again, I've sort of have been along for the ride uh, uh, a little bit uh, here at the MGH. Uh, uh, I'm not doing too much original research myself, but uh, uh, we do uh, we do have a very productive group here, and, it, and it's fun uh, uh, to have that stimulus to, to uh, you know, keep you, your eye on the ball. One of the things that you're clearly uh, an expert on and have done some really fantastic work, not only on researching it, but also talking about it, is bile duct injuries. And I think as a resident, uh, listening to uh, and reading um, stuff that you've put out has been incredibly useful in, in understanding this problem. I was hoping you could um, give a short overview of some of the pitfalls in actually what goes into causing a, a bile duct injury and then talk us through how you, um, you would approach that if, if that happened. So, uh, first of all, it has happened to me. Uh, you know, I've cut a bile duct and, and uh, uh, you know, recognized it and, and had to make those decisions. Um, I, I'm going to do a little um, self-promotion here. Uh, in the July issue of Annals of Surgery, uh, the uh, safe cholecystectomy group, which came out of SAGES and then expanded into all the other major or surgical organizations, is finally publishing the proceedings of, of the of the excellent all-day symposium and consensus conference that was held in uh, at the American College of Surgeons in October of uh, 2018, uh, and that uh, goes through all the major questions and decision-making points related to um, you know, prevention of, of uh, uh, bile duct injuries, uh, recognition of bile duct injuries, and management of bile duct injuries. So I don't know when this uh, will um, actually hit the airways or, or uh, the podcast will become public, but uh, if uh, the uh, people will wait until... Uh, uh, the July issue of Annals comes out, I think everyone will be uh, uh, far more, have a lot more knowledge uh, instilled with them than, than what I will talk off the top of my head on it. But uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that that group has worked so hard on it. And I have to give credit to Mike Brunt, past president of Sages, for, for really making this a passion of his presidential address and then keeping it going uh, uh, and enlisting all the other organizations. So that, that being said, uh, obviously the you know, the, like anything, uh, the best way to treat a, a bile duct injury is to avoid it. And uh, uh, I think we've we've learned a lot uh, through uh, uh, the years about how to do the operation more safely. New techniques such as uh, uh, the critical view of safety, which isn't so new anymore. It's it's uh, 20 years old now, but uh, uh, it is you know a, te a technique that um, uh, I think. 
if done properly, can and do just about everything necessary to uh, ensure avoidance of a of an injury. And it's really most valuable in those easy cholecystectomies because uh, uh, if you get in there and the cholecystectomy is too easy, uh, you, you kind of let your guard down. I think everybody gets gets very uh, uh, concerned on a tough cholecystectomy uh, and and really uh, says, oh, we really really have to be careful. But I would guess that if you really could analyze all the lap cole injuries that are done in America, more of them were probably done on on you know easy, straightforward uh, lap coles than we're on, you know, the tough acute cholecystitis cases. So the nice thing about the critical view of safety is is that it should be achievable in just about every patient. And uh, uh, if you just take that little extra time, and and we're really talking about a matter of minutes, and, and check and double check uh, to, uh, to uh, um, you know, be comfortable with the anatomy and, and know that the structures that you're cutting and dividing are going to the gallbladder and the gallbladder only. You, you, uh, I think are are uh, uh, about the safest as you can be. Um, other things that have evolved over over time is is recognition that not every gallbladder um, that you tackle, particularly for those who do the acute care surgery of the world. Uh, they're doing the gallbladders that come in and they're really getting tough now during COVID. People are sitting home with bad cholecystitis for three or four days because they're afraid to go to the hospital and come in on day five or six and the gallbladder's all matted in. And, you know, you know, the concept of, of, uh, you know, partial cholecystectomy hardly existed, uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, uh, I mean, most people would do whatever it took to get the gallbladder out. And now I think, uh, uh, recognizing that uh, doing a partial cholecystectomy or even a cholecystostomy tube, if, if the case is just too tough, is is a, a way to avoid uh, uh, injury. As you know, we've become aware. Um, actually, the open cholecystectomy, particularly in those cases that are tough to do laparoscopically, has perhaps become the most dangerous operation in America now because most everyone uh, who trains has has grown up doing um, lap coles and very few open coles and so again unless you're in a program where you really have a a, a busy emergency room with a lot of uh, uh acute cholecystitis coming in uh, you're not uh, you're not necessarily cutting your teeth on, on the tough open cole and and so uh, i i do think recognition that injuries can take place and taking every step to avoid them is is the most important thing. Once you've recognized you've had an injury, and uh, in the data we show that the majority of bowel injuries are not recognized at the time of the uh, actual laparoscopic cholecystectomy, uh, they're recognized in the post-operative period. But if you do recognize it at the time of surgery, the best time to repair it is if your situation allows is, is that at that time. Uh, the first thing uh, that you do is you look around where are you and who might be there to help you. And if you're in a situation where you're in an ambulatory surgical center and the patient uh, was going to go home and you don't have all the big retractors and the, the instrumentation to do a reconstruction, you know, you shouldn't be trying it. Uh, whereas if you're in an academic medical center or even a community hospital and there's a you know, there's a more experienced surgeon, particularly someone who's had surgical oncology or HBB or transplant training, uh, you know, always get help. You know, you can't let your ego stand in the way of doing what's best for the patient. And and uh, if doing what's best for the patient involves asking a senior surgeon to come in and help you do the case or help you recognize uh, the nature of the injury or, or just offer advice, I think is, is the first thing that can be done. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, if when you do go about the repair is, is you know, follow good concepts of, of uh, uh, surgical technique, uh, you know, debris, damaged tissues, avoid tension on your anastomosis, which in most cases for bile duct injuries involves uh, not trying to bring the two ends of the bile duct back together as a end-to-end anastomosis, but to bring a Roux-en-Y limb up there, which is a tension-free anastomosis with healthy tissue um, which I, I think is important. Uh, you know, follow good surgical principles, uh, external drainage um, uh, in case there's a leak. And, and again, you know, my personal bias, again, going back to the days of Hopkins training was, 
if there's a way to put a stent across anastomosis uh, for that immediate post-operative period to control of the bowel leak, uh, that's not a bad thing to do. I don't think a stent is required, but it, it's certainly a safety net. It's sort of the belt and suspenders that one can use uh, to make sure that if you do have a leak, that it's a controlled leak and, and uh, uh, doesn't lead to uh, uh, worsening consequences after your repair. Uh, so uh, again, recognition, get help, make the proper decision as to is this the time and place and am I the surgeon to fix it? Uh, and if if all those things uh, uh, check the box that you can do the repair is again, follow good surgical principles. Since most uh, injuries are recognized in the post-operative period, the decision-making of the surgeon uh, when they identify whether it's in the emergency room or after the patient's been readmitted that they have a bowel duct injury. Again, to look around and say, is, is this the institution where we can provide the best of multidisciplinary care? Do I have the interventional radiology backup? Do I have the endoscopy backup? Do I have uh, my own surgical skills to allow me to do that? And if if not, uh, uh, you know, maybe the best assessment is to, uh, you know, to transfer the patient to uh, a center where they do have all of the teams to be able to take care of the patient and and uh, provide the uh, you know the kind of care that ensures good results. You know, there's very few cancers that we treat uh, that have a uh, you know a 90% survival, but you know bowel duct injury should have about a 90% uh, success rate. And and uh, if uh, if it's done in the proper institutions, that those numbers have been classically reproduced many times, uh, uh, at least in you know five-year follow-up. And so I, I think, uh, again, thinking to where the patient would be best managed is, is oftentimes more important than just trying to take care of your own uh, complications. Dr. Lillimo, someone who has uh, obviously a, a bird's-eye view of how this topic has developed over the last uh, few decades, I'm curious, and this might be a spoiler for your Annals of Surgery July edition, uh, but I'm curious as to where you think the management or prevention of these injuries is going to go? Like, uh, as you said, the critical view of safety has been there for 20 years. Do you think that um, the, the issue is going to be just ensuring that everyone knows it? Or, or do you think there's still things that uh, are on the horizon to, to make us better at uh, avoiding this never injury? You know, I, I'm that there is a extensive discussion about alternative techniques, intraoperative ultrasound. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's dye uh, tests that you can do, particularly with the robot that helps you better identify structures and the like. So, uh, you know, I, I do believe technology will, will catch up with us. Uh, uh, the, the one that I like to tell the story about, and, and again, a little bit of self-promotion to uh, a, a group that uh, we have at the MJH is, is really machine learning. And, uh, you know, Chad probably drives a Tesla, uh, 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 but I don't. But uh, the uh, Not yet. I, I do have I do have a car that when when I cross the lane, my my steering wheel shakes a little bit. And uh, if if we could train our our uh, uh, our laparoscopic equipment, uh, uh, the camera to process the performance of a procedure, and and through having studied you know, hundreds and thousands of, of lap coles that if, if I could get a little sh- like dog collar shock on my hand through my Maryland dissector when I'm about ready to uh, encircle the, uh, you know, the common bile duct, uh, thinking it was the cystic duct, that would uh, probably defer, deter me from, uh, you know, wanting to proceed. So I, I, I do think technology will come along, and, and I would like to think that it would be available without the expenses of robots and and just be applicable through uh, uh, machine learning techniques that get applied into, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the this camera system that, that we, we have right now. And I know companies, uh, uh, I, I do not have any uh, a personal conflict of interest uh, with this, but, you know, Companies like Olympus uh, are, are working on these techniques to uh, to try to make for safer surgery. If uh, if we switch gears here just a little bit, Dr. Lillimo, you know you've been a, a mentor to you know dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of us uh, now, and you continue to be so. 
um, at a very at a very close level. I, I was curious, sort of a, at a thirty thousand foot view. What, what does the term mentor mean to you? How do you approach it, and what advice would you have for junior staff uh, or all the way through in terms of being a great mentor? So I think uh, you know, mentor uh, is someone who uh, really cares as much about advancing their mentee's career as they do their own. And they're willing to put in the time and effort to uh, uh, listen and to talk and to guide and to uh, provide feedback uh, at at every stage of your career. And and I I still believe I have mentors now that, that help me and so uh, I, I think you never are too senior to, uh, um, you know, to not have mentors. Uh, and I, again, as I alluded to, uh, uh, being a mentor is a way of paying back to the people who mentored me all the way through my career and provided opportunities for, for me. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I always consider myself very fortunate if, if someone seeks me out to be a, a, a mentor and having been a program director and a chair now for, uh, you know, chair for 17 years and um, uh, program director for 10 years on top of that, you know, I do get placed in the opportunity where I, I do get a chance to talk to, uh, um, you know, medical students, residents, trainees and faculty and fellows uh, mentoring from everything about where they should match in the, you know, in the, in the uh, NIRMP to where they should do their fellowships to their first jobs and, and, and the like. But there's also mentoring in terms of, uh, you know, how you conduct yourself uh, professionally uh, and, uh, um, you know, the example that you set. I, I think we all are exposed to a lot of people uh, who c- could be mentors. And I, I think uh, as you as a young person are looking for, or anyone who's looking for a mentor, they should try to look at the characteristics and the qualities of the mentor and say, you know, that's really where I'd like to be in, uh, you know, X number of years. And my first mentors were, you know, first and second year residents uh, at Hopkins when I was a uh, uh, medical student. I I just wanted to be like them. And then, you know, when I became a uh, junior resident, I wanted to be like my chief residents. And when I became a faculty member, I, you know, that's when I started recognizing that, you know, I had to have mentors that will help take me to, you know, to the next level. And again, fortunately, there were several around during that period of time. And uh, so, uh, you know, the good thing about uh, uh, mentoring is even though you, um, you know, the focus is really on the mentee, that uh, again, I hate to come up with all these corny statements, but you know, light shines brighter off of when it's reflected off someone else. And so, uh, if you have success as a, a, a mentor and your mentees rise to levels of, of success, uh, people will figure that out, and and uh, you'll, you'll get some credit for it. So, it, it is uh, uh, mutually beneficial. But really, the better job you do uh, in in helping the people you're you're trying to be a mentor for in achieving their goals, uh, the better you will be. You know, one of the other uh, many <laughs> of the other many jobs that you that you do off of your desk is, of course, the editor-in-chief of Annals of Surgery. And certainly this audience, you know, knows and feels that Annals is clearly the preeminent surgical journal in the world. I, I was curious, just three rapid-fire questions about your, your that role in, in Annals. How do you view that job um, would be the first question. The second question, you know, it's a, it's a bit biased because I've spent enough uh, close quarter time with you that I have seen how you actually fit it into your day. But for our listeners, um, maybe describe um, uh, how you do that. And the third thing, uh, both, you know, selfishly from the professional side of things as well as curiosity, how do you deal with an upset author who maybe didn't like one or two or three or sometimes four of the of the reviews and, and sends you that, that terse email? Uh, so let's go from the last question first, because I dealt with that today. Um, you know, paper that was rejected generated a, um, uh, you know, a polite uh, email uh, pointing out 
you know, the, why they disagreed with the decision. And so the first thing I do is I listen to them and I, I look at uh, what the reviews said and what their response is. And then I, uh, in, in the case today, um, it, it was a paper that we had had uh, uh, three reviews on. And one review was high accept, one review was flat out reject, uh, and one was sort of intermediate. So it wasn't as if this was a slam dunk uh, either direction. And and I, I said, uh, so we, 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 but I sent an email in response to the email that I had received saying, I'll resend you, rescind your decision and I will send it out uh, to uh, someone who has not seen it before. Let them take a look at it uh, and uh, uh, give give me a, a new, fresh set of eyes. And um, fortunately, uh, one of the good things about uh, COVID, it, there are a lot of us who've had a little bit more time on our hands, and I'll get into that in a minute to your second question. But the uh, uh, I sent it to a very well-respected uh, surgeon in that area, and uh, he said, I'll look at it now. And, and within two hours, I had a, a response uh, from the fourth reviewer that the paper should be rejected. And I had established with the uh, you know, with the authors, I said, I'm going to send it to one person. And if, if that person says accept, we'll accept. And if he says reject, uh, we'll reject. And, you know, in this case, uh, the, the decision went along the lines of uh, our original decision. Uh, and at least I, I gave the a person a chance. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, I'll look at it and there was, you know, two or three very solid rejects. And I just have to say, you know, there's not much you're going to do that's going to overcome this uh, decision and, and don't go to quite as much work as we did today. But still, uh, I, I think you should at least listen to their arguments and, and go back and look uh, rather than just flat out say, you know, the decision is a decision. Just like curiosity, you know, the, given the massive number of submissions you guys at Annals get, how common is that scenario where you have an upset author sending that email back to you? Oh, I would say um, probably a weekly occurrence. Is that right? Wow. So, so we we we're on pace right now for well over three thousand submissions, and and again that'll get into the second side of the, your question or second question. Uh, but uh, you know, if 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 we're getting fifty or sixty, so we we accept roughly around ten uh, percent. So ten percent of uh, of uh, uh, 3,000, we'll keep the numbers uh, uh, simple. We, we accept 300, we reject 2,700. If I'm only getting 50 to uh, 75, uh, you know, requests for reconsideration, I, I think we must be doing a pretty good job. Yeah, so. very. Um, so the time. Um, I know we're not going to talk about COVID very much, but the thing that's been most noticeable for me is that there must be a lot of people have time on their hands because the manuscripts are just pouring in uh, and so the numbers are up. And I, I I don't know whether this was a smart thing or not a smart thing, but I, I sort of threw out there, I said, look, at if you want to send something to annals of surgery that's COVID-related, we'll promise a rapid turnaround uh, and uh, immediate publication uh, online. And so uh, uh, at last count, we were up to 400 submissions just on COVID-related topics uh, wow. in the last uh, six weeks. And uh, um, it, it's, it, that has really increased the workload dramatically. And, and uh, I give a lot of credit to uh, the annals production staff because when I accept something and send it in the next morning, if, if I've done it at night, uh, I... Um, um, will um usually expect it'll it'll be available on the website and and available through epub within 48 hours which i think is remarkable uh we've we've accepted i guess of 400 or so uh papers that we've submitted i, I think we're pushing about 50 that we have uh uh put into press so again uh, these are all available on the annals of surgery website and we're now moving from papers that were all about the disease uh uh, it was a paper published in Annals, which really set up the first question about the, the role of uh, 
uh, laparoscopy and aerosolizing, I don't say this word very well, but, you know, aerosolizing uh, viral particles and whether it really happens or not uh, is is been debated. Whether the particles can be in, in uh, smoke uh, associated with cauteries has, has been raised. Uh, and, and so it, I think it was good to get that paper out right away. Uh, we've we've uh, looked at uh, a lot of papers. One of the ones we published was from the University of Pennsylvania on how to safely do a tracheostomy in, in uh, uh, these patients who, uh, you know, when you're cutting into their airway, you, you could get a blast of uh, of uh, viral particles. Uh, so how to, how to go about that? Uh, so the, the first few weeks were all about treating the disease and how to uh, strategize and and uh, um, uh, shut down your programs, do safe surgery uh, uh, and safe decision making. And so those, uh, uh, we've sort of run out of topics there. Uh, there's still a few that come through. Uh, but in general, most of uh, what we're looking for now is how do we deal with the next phase? Uh, uh, what are the uh, the steps for ramping up? How do we deal with education now? Uh, there's, you know, I, I just got a memo Harvard is not going to allow visiting uh, students to come uh, rotate at, at the MGH uh, this year or any of our hospitals. How do we uh, appeal to that group, which is oftentimes a, a strong opportunity for us to get to know the candidates who have an interest with us and have them audition with us and for us a chance to impress them. So we're, we're, we're focusing our, our uh, uh, most of the papers that are being accepted now aren't about how we treated the COVID epidemic as if we were on the on the uh, peak of the uh, uh, crisis, but how are we going to manage it now that we've flattened out and we're moving into uh, other areas? Although uh, there is now an opportunity for people to report their actual results, uh, and you know, at first there was case reports of this or case report of that or guidelines or how I do it or how we're doing this or that. I, I think. There will start to be accumulating data on, you know, what happened to the, uh, the transplant community. Uh, what 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 are the true risks of transplantation uh, in the uh, COVID uh, era? Uh, you know, do, do, uh, are we should we be turning down organs and not bringing in patients who are are well to get transplants? So, uh, we're, we're I do think there are some results that are going to be reported beyond just. Uh, you know, we treated 12 patients who had COVID and this, this is how many died. I, I think there will be information that's gained and perhaps registries that are accumulated. Uh, but this step that I did or misstep that I did that opened the door up for 400 submissions on one topic in six weeks has is, is, uh, changed my workload a, a bit since I do most of the decision-making myself. Uh, so I have done a lot of time. Uh, you know, Chad referred to the fact that I, I do multitask pretty well, uh, so I can generally assign and, and review a lot of uh, decisions that have come from my outstanding associate editor group, and, and the recommendation comes from the editorial board and ad hoc reviewers that, you know, I, I can, can oftentimes multitask in doing that when there happens to be a a sporting event on in the background or the like, or even, you know, a break between uh, my, you know, my biggest activity now is Zoom calls, you know, every hour or two. Uh, and uh, if, if it's the wrong Zoom call, you can kind of check out a little bit and, and review decisions or do assignments while, while somebody's yeah. babbling on about whatever the topic is. You just sort of direct the camera away from your face so they don't see that you're looking at your computer screen. Audio only. So, yeah, audio only, yeah. So Those were the second and third question. The first question was... Yeah, I, w I was just curious, uh, sort of your, your overview of, of how you view that job, because I think certainly the majority of us and the rest of the world look at it as a really, really important uh, and obviously prestigious job. You know, you, I would say that you, you clearly, um, in so many ways, but in particular through the journal, direct the way that surgery is going. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I do view it as important. Uh, I, I think that I have a, a lot of impact on sixty or so residents and a hundred or so faculty and. And, uh, you know, maybe a 
an association here or there outside of our home base. But you know, this is a, an opportunity to have a great impact on on uh, really the entire world and practice of surgery. And and uh, uh, you know, it's it's too big a job for one person, and that's why having you know a great associate editor team, a, a great group of uh, of um, uh, people on the editorial board, a, a huge stable of people who are willing to, uh, uh, you know, put in the time to volunteer the time to uh, review uh, uh, manuscripts is, is so important. And, and uh, so, uh, I, you know, I think that um, it, it's, it's sort of like service to our profession. If, if you're going to write papers, if you're going to read papers, I, I would hope people would always be willing to review a paper. Now, of course, if you're an acute care surgeon or a critical care surgeon this time of year, I, I just, or not this time of year, but this, this crisis going on, I, I try to, uh, you know, avoid sending papers uh, uh, to, to people I know are, are up to their, you know, eyebrows with uh, COVID patient care. But uh, there's a lot of us uh, who have not been on the front lines of, of treating uh, patients who have, have really stepped up during this period of time and, and uh, you know, reviews are coming faster. I've even had people who, you know, said that, uh, you know, they've been quarantined because they had an exposure and, and they said, send me some extra manuscripts to review. So I never turned down that opportunity. So, Dr. Lilmo, one of the things I've been most impressed about with the Annals of Surgery is just how on the forefront you have been with sort of pushing what the journal does. I mean, I think in a, in an era where uh, journals sometimes struggle to find relevance, I think Annals has actually been leading the way in terms of embracing new technologies. Um, so, for example, I think I think the visual abstracts has been largely, uh, you know, something that Annals has really pushed. And then uh, lately, particularly with COVID, Annals has been instrumental in really collating things on social media. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you sort of navigated that uh, very tricky water of, of embracing these new technologies um, uh, and, and and keeping um, something like Annals not only relevant, but really pushing um I think the the frontiers of how journals can interact with their readers. So um, when, when you're sort of as untech savvy as I am and, and non-social media savvy, and to know that uh, most of the people do agree with you that Annals has sort of set the stage for uh, social media for surgical journals, I, I have to give all the credit to this string of great young bright uh, uh, individuals, uh, starting with uh, Andrew Abraham, uh, who was our first uh, creative director and, and who actually sort of came up with the idea of the, the visual abstract. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've we've had uh, a, a great series. Our, our most recent uh, person, uh, Karen Shaba, uh, was, was very... Uh, uh, and social media focused, even as a medical student. I remember we tried to recruit him as a uh, intern applicant. He he went to the dark side. He matched it to Brigham, and uh, but now he's working more closely with me because he's been his uh, uh, you know our, our uh, creative director for the last two years, and and uh, uh, you know he's done a great job of of taking it to the next level. This the whole thing with the COVID. Uh, uh, um, uh, site uh, has been uh, was really his idea. So, again, surrounding yourself with with bright, creative minds uh, can make anybody look good. Well, I, I I do definitely think that it takes some bravery to um, take a journal that's well respected like like Annals and uh, and put it into some uncharted waters. So, I, I definitely think you deserve some kudos for that. Um, what uh, I wanted to also ask you if you had. Um, some advice for for authors who wanted to perhaps publish their manuscript in the annals one day uh, after having read so many different manuscripts. What are the absolute uh, do's and don'ts uh, for any prospective author? Well, um, you know, first of all, it comes down to the, the subject matter. Um, you know, you, you got to find something that's new and innovative uh and uh interesting and uh um you know I, I think the days of 
you know, my, uh, this is my series of the largest number of this or that getting published is, is not happening as much as it used to. Uh, I mean, or at least not being happening quite as much in the, uh, in the top flight journals. Although Annals probably, uh, has still publishes a fair amount of those. I, I think you've got to tell a story that, that says more than just, I, I've done a lot of these, uh, and this is what my results are. You've got to try to find what's important out of your results and, and translate that into a message, which again, uh, advances the care of patients. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, um, you know, construct a, a, a manuscript well. I mean, you need an interesting introduction. You need a well-defined uh, um, methodology. You present your results in a combination of, of words and figures and tables so, so that they're very clear. You don't try to do too much. Uh, uh, but still give give as much information that's important to tell the story, and then finally uh, wrap it all up with a strong uh, discussion of, of of the relevance, uh, including the you know whatever might be viewed as as limitations of your study, uh, uh, and and use proper uh, um, you know have it if, if it's you know one of the best things about for me was. Uh, my uh with my South Dakota education background, my best friend was a Princeton grad, so every time uh I had a manuscript that I, I would write, Charlie Yo would uh you know, we would we're generally co authors. Charlie would always correct my English and make sure my sentences were constructed properly. Uh whereas Dr. Cameron would just focus, you know, on what's the key points uh, of the uh of the paper and, and uh so you you best way to write a paper is to do it collectively with getting the opinions of of uh multiple co-authors and and uh make sure that things are said in a fashion that may seem perfectly clear to me because I know the data and I've written the data but someone who doesn't know it quite as well uh will say you know this doesn't make sense you need to go back and and rephrase this sentence or represent this data or look at this differently so you know the solo author uh um Manuscripts uh, are uh, just not going to work. So, Dr. Luma, we we can't thank you enough for for spending time with us uh, again on Cold Steel. I just want to close with with maybe two uh, two softball questions, uh, and then uh, again, thank you. The the first is I th I think we all know that after your family and and your your professional career. Um, but maybe the third thing uh, that comes into that is your love of sports. And certainly having seen your memorabilia collection and, and listened to your stories and some of the amazing events you've been to, I, I was just curious what your what your top uh, one or two or three of those would, would be. Well, again, uh, blowing my cover here in Boston, I'm a, I'm a Yankee and Raven yeah. fan. So uh, you know, I've got a lot of uh, things that are Yankee-related. <clears throat> you know, one of... Uh, a couple of my favorite pieces are, are number one, uh, when Andy Pettit and uh, Derek Jeter went out and took the ball away from Mariano Rivera uh, on his last uh, uh, appearance at Yankee Stadium. I have that signed by all three of them. That's a favorite. Wow. I also have uh, um, a, um, um, a picture of uh, Ray Lewis, his last home game at, at uh, uh at the Ravens stadium where he does his little dance in front of the whole crowd and signed by Ray and the team. So those are a couple that jump right out. Uh, you know, then I have a few that are, are, you know, somewhat, you know, important, uh, cause I was at the event like, uh, Cal Ripken, uh, his 21 31 game when he broke the record of, uh, of, um, uh, uh, Lou, Lou Gehrig, uh, for consecutive games. And I have, something signed from him from that day. And then uh, uh, I, I have some, too, from people I've taken care of. Uh, uh, I, I maybe have to be a pretty deep sports fan to know there was just a uh, um, Baltimore Oriole baseball player who had uh, uh, colon cancer in his 20s, 27, 28, just had colon cancer surgery. And uh, uh, some uh, uh, very hard-working uh, beat writer for the Orioles uh, published some stories about uh, two previous Oriole greats who had uh, colon cancer. One was John Boog Powell and one was uh, 
um, Eric Davis, and I just happened to be the surgeon on both of them. So uh, you know, this was back in, in uh, 1996, and, and uh, to have those stories retold related to this young man uh, and actually had uh, uh, had my name actually brought up to the uh, you know in the in the uh, paper that or in the article that the the uh, sports writer wrote uh, I, I've told this story again many times uh, there's this uh, great line that your kids don't uh, read your CV but uh, all my kids watched the day that uh, I was the lead story on Sports Center announcing you know talking about Eric Davis's operation and his diagnosis and you know, it was sort of pre-HIPAA days, but uh, actually holding a press conference uh, live on SportsCenter kind of kind of made it for me. So that sort of puts your statement, Chad, that sports is pretty important. So. Oh, wow, I love it. I love it. Uh, I'm just hoping uh, you'll you'll close us out um, with maybe providing us with a you know single or or one or two of the most important pieces of advice you would have for. Uh, both trainees uh, in a surgical residency, maybe even a fellow, and then as a junior staff. Well, I mean, uh, again, I, <clears throat> I'm not sure that these are are unique, but um, and I've sort of alluded to them is uh, uh, get good mentors and and watch how every surgeon acts in every situation, whether it's a tough case or an easy case, whether it's how they interact with nurses and students, you know, and and try to make yourself a composite of all the good qualities of people you see. And I think that doesn't matter whether you're a, a medical student, a resident, or a faculty member. <clears throat> you, you need to um, um, sort of take the best from everyone and, and also learn from what isn't good about people. And, and so make yourself a composite of the good things that surround you. Uh, and secondly, uh, uh, again, it's applicable to um, anyone at any stage. Uh, it was a, uh, a line that the great John Tarpley uh, still probably says is get in the habit of having good habits, uh, which means, uh, you know, whether it's tying a, a, you know, a stitch, uh, you always, you know, drive your finger down to secure the knot uh, flat and, and do everything rather than, uh, get in the bad habit of doing it when it's maybe not as important because if you don't have that uh, tendency to have good habits uh, when it is important you may you may make a mistake so those are two generic things work hard uh, look for the right opportunities uh, always think ahead uh, you know I never have done anything thinking about what my next job was going to be but uh, you always want to position yourself so that whatever you do, you'll you'll be there when when the right opportunity will come along. So, uh, you know, I think had I not gone to uh, Indiana and had I not uh, done some of the things that we did at Indiana when the opportunity to come to the Mass General came along, I, I probably wouldn't have been a candidate. So, never stop uh, looking for new opportunities. Uh, in the uh, annals of surgery uh, story. I, you know, I was um, asked by Dr. Sabiston to write a review article on pancreatic cancer. You know, who would ever turn David Sabiston down? So I, I wrote it and, and submitted it to him, and he probably just read it himself, wrote me back a nice handwritten letter, or at least hand-signed letter, long before the days of email saying, you know, thank you for such a nice uh, um, um, review article, and oh, by the way, would you like to be on the Annals of Surgery editorial board? And, uh, you know, had I just blown him off and said, no, I, you know, I don't have time to write a review article, uh, you know, who knows what would happen. My whole life with respect to annals of surgery may never have played out. Uh, so, you know, you can't do everything and you need to know when to say no. Uh, but, you know, as I look at the clock, it's 10:15 here in the East Coast, but I would never say no to you to, to do something like this because uh, I think it's important. And, and so you just have to be selective, but if you see a good opportunity, you should take it. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs 
at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.